kids fifth grade and under, you're dismissed for junior church. Taking us through that, Stacy. Thank you. I just want to acknowledge that uh, you write a lot of songs, and I, I like almost all of them, like blueberry pancakes. Oh. But <laughs> uh, I haven't heard all of them. That's why I can't say all. But uh, I really appreciate what you've done here in uh, helping to draw our hearts to the to the focus of the series. Before we uh, before we begin, let's start with a word of prayer. Father in heaven, as we work through the text of your word, the concepts that you've put forth remind us that your word is eternal. Your word stands firm. And therefore, your word is a worthy source of our hope. Lord, in this season, so often we hope in nostalgia. We hope in all sorts of things. In our world, we put our hope in politics, social justice, the milk of human kindness. Forgive us, Lord, and guide us. Give us a hope that does not disappoint. Help us to place our, our full weight of hope in your Son, Jesus Christ. Not in Christmas, but in Christ. We pray this in his name. Amen. Well, I don't know if you've been to a mall lately. It's kind of difficult in COVID period here, and I understand that they're making some changes. The mall Santas now have plexiglass in front of them. I don't know how all this works. I'm not sure how a kid gets their picture taken on Santa's lap, so maybe they stand in front of the plexiglass to try to protect them. Have you ever thought about how difficult the job of being a mall Santa must be? You know, because a lot of the kids don't realize that, that you're Santa's emissary. You're not the actual Santa, right? And so some of them really believe that you're the big guy. They haven't figured out yet that there's another big guy up the street. There's another one. But they, they don't understand that you are the emissary, the representative, the embodiment in that moment of Santa. And yet there is such a weight, aside from the weight of children with moistness on them, on your lap, and sticky fingers and faces and sneezes and soggy britches, enough to count me out for sure but every word you say represents the man in red so every word you say these kids are hanging on so if a kid says I want a pony for Christmas and you say I think we're gonna make that happen mom and dad better pony up or there's gonna be a heartbreak 
If Santa doesn't bring what the emissary of Santa promises, there is a real problem. Because those kids, they're hanging their hope on your words. That's big. Even if you just say something like, you know, we'll try and see what can happen. Santa doesn't really know. How are you supposed to know? But there's an implied promise. And if you fail, boy, what a disappointment that is. You know, as we work through Christmas, our hopes are very often like the hopes of a child in a mall Santa. They're not placed in the right thing. The source of our hope is flawed. Therefore, our hope cannot fully and consistently deliver the expectation. No wonder so many people are disappointed with the church. Because we've very often taken the role of the mall Santa, making promises or allowing implicit promises to be propagated that are not in keeping with what God himself actually said. When we put our hope in the things of this world, we will always be disappointed. Our core reality for today is that the real hope of Christmas is the promise of God. The real hope of Christmas is the promise of God. And as Jeff read for us earlier in Psalm 130, uh, there is a hope that is fitting and it is right. The hope of the Old Testament people of God, the hope of Israel, was to be in God himself. God had made promises to them that they could count on. The problem very often for them, as for us, is we distort the promises. Or we don't take the time to learn what the promise means. Or we take a promise for someone else and act as if it is our promise. And we need to understand the reality of God's promises. In Psalm 130, we read, Out of the depths I cry to you, Lord. Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to my cry for mercy. There is a, a hope that there is some sort of answer in God. That he would hear and that he would act. He continues in verse 3, If you, Lord, kept a record of sins, Lord, who could stand? If, if, if you're measuring my sins, I'm doomed. And isn't that the reality? We stand condemned already because of our sins, according to what Jesus said in John 3.18. But, and here's where the hope begins to come in, but with you there is forgiveness so that we can with reverence serve you. The older rendering of the NIV says, so that you may be feared crazy to think about the forgiveness of God leads to the fear of God and recognizing who he is the majesty the power the justice the wrath in juxtaposition with 
the forgiveness that God offers, fear and reverent service are the logical responses. The psalmist continues in verse 5, I wait for the Lord, my whole being waits. And in His word, I put my hope. This is our focus for today. This is the memory verse that I would encourage you to, to take in, to make yours, and own it. Now, this might be a verse that you have not memorized before. I think Psalm 130 is perhaps not the most common of psalms for us to read. You don't see it a lot on, on mugs and t-shirts and, and plaques. But what a beautiful reality we read here in verse 5. Let me read it again. I wait for the Lord. My whole being waits. And the, the older in the King James, it says, my soul waits. My whole being waits. And in His Word, I put my hope. There's a waiting involved in this kind of hope. In this biblical hope, we'll see as we go that it's not the same kind of hope that the little kid on Santa's lap might have. Man, I, I really hope that he comes through. I really, I really want this to be true. I hope it is. Maybe it is. There's a waiting for the Lord with our whole beings, with our very souls, and putting our hope in His Word. The Word of God stands eternal. The Word of God is the reflection of God's nature and character. When God says it, God does it. That's a good place for an amen. When God says it, God does it. This is the real hope of Christmas. God is a promise keeper. He makes promises and He keeps promises. It's in His nature to declare that which is not, that it might be. This is the reality of our hope. When we see Christmas, when we think of, when we ponder the Advent, the Incarnation, the Advent is the coming of Christ. The Incarnation is the putting on of skin by the divine God. When we put these things into our brain, what we are seeing is that what God has promised, God has fulfilled and is fulfilling and will fulfill. In Genesis 3.15, you don't have to turn there right now, great homework for you, we'll see it throughout the season. In Genesis 3.15, the proto-evangelion, the, the first telling of the good news is in, it's built into the curse that comes when sin enters the system. God creates Adam and Eve in a perfect environment for a perfect relationship with a perfect God. They are perfect, they are without sin, they are without lack, they are without clothes. But they are without clothes because they are without lack. And it's not Michigan, so that, you, know, you want clothes in Michigan. But the reality of the nakedness that we see in the creation story is not a focus on the fact that they ain't got no clothes on. It's a focus on the fact that there is no division, no separation between one another and between them and God. There's no shame. There's no guilt. There's nothing to hide. They are literally, in, in the connotation of the Hebrew, naked unto one another. Naked before God. 
without shame. Then the interloper comes. And in chapter 3, the serpent in the garden is another voice. And they listen to this voice as opposed to the voice of their father, their creator. Did God really say, well, no, he didn't really say that, but he maybe said this. Well, he didn't really say that. You know, if, he, if God said, you're going to die, he's just trying to hold stuff back from you because you're not really going to die. Go ahead. Take a bite. Try it. You'll like it. And you'll be like God. And they do. And they eat the fruit. But it's not about the fruit. It's about the sin. It's about choosing to go their own way instead of God's way. And the entire cosmos, the entire creation fell under a curse. And as God is revealing the curse to Adam and Eve, you're going to toil. You were working before, but now that work becomes toil. You were husband and wife before, and there was a submissive, a submissive role built into it, but now it's going to grind you. Now you're going to belong to your husband and resent it. Now you're going to work for a living and resent it because you're fighting against creation by doing your thing instead of God's thing. You are contra-reality. And to the serpent, as he curses the serpent, he promises that a serpent crusher would come. That the seed of the woman would crush the serpent's head. No, this is not the seed of the man. That would be normal, wouldn't it? When we speak of seed in the, in the uh, conception process, that's the male role, is the seed. But the seed of the woman, apart from the man, that's Jesus would come, and while the serpent would bruise his heel, this champion, this promised anointed one, this Messiah, the Greek form of which is Christ, would crush his head. Ever since then, Israel and all God's people have longed for, have sought out the serpent crusher. And the hope of Israel was that God would keep his promise, that he would bring this deliverer. And as you watch the Old Testament unfold, as you watch Hebrew history unfold, as you see the law described and the prophets later call to conviction the hypocrisy and the failure of God's people, woven throughout is this theme that God will do what he promised. That his champion, his prince of peace would come and Israel would be redeemed. The ancient hope of this Messiah is throughout the Old Testament. And as we see this, you can write this down. Prophets foretold Christ's coming Therefore, God's people eagerly anticipated the fulfillment of God's promise. <clears throat> Prophets foretold Christ's coming. Therefore, God's people eagerly anticipated the fulfillment of God's promise. All the way back to Genesis. In Genesis 12, as God called Abraham, 
He called him out, not because of anything Abraham had done. He was still Abram at the time. And God calls him out and says, I'm going to send you to a place. I'm not telling you where. Just go, follow me. We'll do this. And I will make of you a nation. In fact, many nations. In fact, so many people will come from you, not just genetically, but by faith. That's us, according to Paul in Romans. Then it'll be like the sands on the seashore. You can't even count them. When you can count the stars, then you'll begin to get the picture. That's how great a nation you will become, how much the, the nations of the world, the Gentiles, will be blessed through you, through your offspring. Jesus came for all. The promise to David of having his offspring sit on the throne forever and reign over Israel and God's people. The promise through the prophets that all the justice, all the injustice of the world would be set right and true justice would come. This was the hope. The prophets foretold Christ's coming. Therefore, God's people eagerly anticipated the fulfillment of God's promise. Notice this. Many put their hope in something God did not promise. Many put their hope in something God did not promise. This is the problem that they ran into. They saw the promises of God, and they took hold of the ones that they liked. Don't we do that same thing? God says something, and it's, it's a little bit like, forgive me guys, a husband listening to a wife in marriage. I hear some of it. I hear what seems to me to be important. Blah, 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 pie. Blah, 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 football. Blah, blah, blah. I'll stop there before I get out of control. And we think or we'll say, oh, yeah, I'm totally listening. <laughs> yeah, you are. I'm sorry. It's, it's so, I, I apologize for all of my 30 years of sins here. But the reality is we only hear part of it. We take what we want and we run with it. And that's what happened with God's people. Is, you know, the, the idea of this champion coming to redeem God's people, that's, that's a pretty cool idea, right? So what you're saying, God, is we win. All right, I like that part. But we missed out on, Israel missed out on, the reality that God had a bigger plan in mind. It was more than just I'm going to come in, I'm going to kick out the bad guys, and Israel will rule the world. That was kind of the idea, in a nutshell. And there were different camps, understanding it slightly differently, but in a nutshell, that was it. God's going to come in, he's going to kick out these heathens, and we're going to run the show. It, it sort of creates a tension that's best captured in the difference between Isaiah 9, you can turn there. We're going to look at two passages in Isaiah real quick, quickly. In Isaiah 9, a passage you're familiar with, if for no other reason than Handel's Messiah. But there's a contrast between Isaiah 9 and Isaiah 53. And the picture that we have here is not intended to be a contradiction, but overlapping cells of this picture if you've ever seen what old cell animation was where they would overlay pictures 
with different depths and different, different uh, aspects. And you get the full picture, and then it would begin to, to move. That's the same idea with what we see in the prophecies here. Isaiah 9 gives part of the picture. Isaiah 53 gives another part of the picture. And the way that God's people often put their hope in something that God did not promise was to only take part of it. Isaiah chapter 9, let's start with verse 1. Nevertheless, there will be no more gloom for those who were in distress. Well, that's good news, right? We like that. In the past, he humbled the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, but in the future, he will honor Galilee of the nations by the way of the sea beyond the Jordan. Galilee of the Gentiles. When you see that the nations term, it's referring to the Gentiles outside of the Jews. Well, that doesn't make any sense. So we're going to skip over that, right? Because that can't really apply to God's promises here. What do the Gentiles have to do with anything? This is about us. It continues. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of deep darkness, a light has dawned. Sounds encouraging. You have enlarged the nation and increased their joy. They rejoice before you as people rejoice at the harvest, as warriors rejoice when dividing the plunder. I'm getting fired up now. This is like a, a pep talk. For as in the day of Midian's defeat, you have shattered the yoke that burdens them, the bar across their shoulders, the rod of their, of their oppressor. Every warrior's boot used in battle and every garment rolled in blood will be destined for burning, will be fuel for the fire. For to us, a child is born. To us, a son is given. And the government will be on his shoulders. And he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the greatness of his government and peace, there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. The zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. And all God's people said, Amen. Now that's an easy, easy prophecy for us to hold on to, right? If I'm part of Israel, and this is saying God's going to continue to increase Israel. All this suffering we're going through right now, we can endure this because God will bring the Messiah and He will kick tail, right? We're going to roll these people. We're going to get everything back that we lost. We are going to overcome and God will establish us. And of the increase of this Messiah's kingdom, His rulership, us, Israel, there will be no end. Seems exciting. The problem is, that's only part of the picture. There are so many other prophecies that give that same idea. Turn, if you would, to Isaiah 53 to find one that gives a different idea. In Isaiah 53, same prophet writing, same God speaking. Here's what Isaiah writes here. Who has believed our message, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? He grew up before him like a tender shoot, and like a root out of dry ground. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him. Nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by mankind. A man of suffering, familiar with pain, 
Like one from whom people hide their faces, he was despised, and we held him in low esteem. Surely he took up our pain and bore our suffering, yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him. And by his wounds we are healed. By his wounds we are healed. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to our own way. and The Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he didn't open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter, as a sheep before its shearers is silent. So he did not open his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. Yet who of his generation protested? For he was cut off from the land of the living. For the transgression of my people he was punished. He was assigned a grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death, though he had done no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the Lord's will to crush him and cause him to suffer. And though the Lord makes His life an offering for sin, He will see His offspring and prolong His days. And the will of the Lord will prosper in His hand. He will be cut off from the land of the living. He'll be killed. He will die as a sacrifice for sins. And yet, He will see His offspring. Hard to do when you're dead. And God's will will prosper in His hand. Hard to do when you're dead. After he has suffered, verse 11, he will see the light of life and be satisfied. After he has suffered, after he has been cut off, after he has been crushed, after he has died, he will see the light of life and be satisfied. By his knowledge, my righteous servant will justify many, and he will bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will give him a portion among the great, and he will divide the spoils with the strong, because he poured out his life unto death and was numbered with the transgressors. For he bore the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressors. They missed it because they thought it was just going to be victory unto victory. They missed it because they saw a prince of peace, a warrior king who would come and rule with an iron scepter and remove all injustice. And that is true. But it's only part of the picture. Christ will return and do that very thing. But before then, he had to redeem the people, to bear our sin, to conquer sin and death. That's why Jesus came. We cannot preach or understand Advent without Good Friday and Easter Sunday. It is not the baby in the manger where we find reason for hope. It's that the baby in the manger was the fulfillment of what leads up to the fulfillment of God promising redemption to His people. Our hope is that God always keeps 
his promises. Prophets foretold Christ's coming, therefore God's people eagerly anticipated the fulfillment of God's promise. Many put their hope in something God did not promise. Notice this. Their own expectations kept them from experiencing the reality of God's promise. Their own expectations kept them from experiencing the reality of God's promise. In one of my favorite sections in Scripture, there's a lot, in John 1, specifically in verses 11 and 12, we see Jesus described as the Word in John 1, eternally coexistent with God, putting on flesh, coming to earth. And in John 1.11, it says that he came to his own, but his own wouldn't receive him. He came to the people that he made, who bore his image, specifically to the people that were chosen, made God's own nation, his own children, given the precious promises of God, and yet they did not receive him. The people who should have known best could not experience the reality of God fulfilling his promise because they were too bound in their own expectations of what that might look like. How many of you know God's not restricted by our expectations? We need to, like them, let go of the things that we cling to that are not what God promised. Let's press on. Their own expectations kept them from experiencing the reality of God's promise. The real hope of Christmas is the promise of God. Let's fast forward to Simeon. Back in Luke 2. Simeon and, and also, <clears throat> pardon me, uh, Simeon and also Hannah, as, as they are together here in this picture, they're at the temple at the presentation of Jesus. They're coming to do the, the, the religious rituals, the things that they're supposed to do. And as they are here, and he's, the child is given the name Jesus, God saves. He will save his people from their sins. They come across a guy that ostensibly they don't know. His name's Simeon. Simeon has been, as it says here, let me read it for you so I make sure that we get it right. I want you to see it. Verse 25, there's a man in Jerusalem called Simeon who was righteous and devout. Okay, he lives for God. He, he's seeking to do all that God wants him to do. But notice this. He was waiting for the consolation of Israel. In other words, the fulfillment of God's promises to Israel. He's waiting for the Messiah. He's waiting for God to do what God had promised. And the Holy Spirit was on him. At this point in time, the Holy Spirit came and went. He didn't dwell in people, but he visited. And the Holy Spirit was on him. It had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit. God had promised him that he would not die before he had seen the Lord's Messiah. That wasn't a promise for everybody. It was a promise for Simeon. And it was specific and clear, and he knew it. He would not die until he had seen the Lord's Messiah, the Lord's Christ. Moved by the Spirit, he went into the temple courts. 
So he's following the prompting of God. He feels God moving him here. I don't know what's going on, but I just I know I'm supposed to be in the temple today. So he goes to the temple courts. When the parents, Joseph and Mary, brought in the child Jesus to do for him what the custom of the law required, Simeon from Jerusalem, they're not from Jerusalem, doesn't appear that he knows them, strange guy walks up, let me take your baby. Um, okay. Simeon took him in his arms and praised God, saying, Sovereign Lord, don't miss that, Sovereign Lord, God who can do anything you want, God who holds all authority, God who rules over everything, you are the master of all things. What you say is, what you say goes, I submit to you as the entire cosmos is designed to submit to you. Sovereign Lord, as you have promised, he's calling back to God that you said this. I didn't make this up. You promised it, and according to your promise, Lord, you can dismiss your servant in peace now. For my eyes have seen, have beheld your salvation in this child, which you have prepared in the sight of all nations, not just for Israel, for all the Gentiles as well. Lord, you have prepared your salvation. You are keeping your promise right now for everyone that the entire world might see this. This salvation, this child, this anointed one, verse 32, is a light for revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of your people Israel. I hope through this season you will see that the glory of Israel is the winning of the Gentiles. The glory of Israel is that God keeps His promise not only for Israel's temporal glory, but for their eternal glory. As Christ comes from Israel for us all. A couple of things to notice. We'll move quickly through these in Simeon. Notice this. Simeon eagerly waited for God to fulfill his promise. He eagerly waited for God to fulfill his promise. When we encounter him here, he's been waiting for the consolation of Israel. He's contemplating it. He's thinking about it. He's talking to God about it. God makes him a promise in relationship to the promise that God's already made. So God makes a promise to the people, a promise to the world, if you will, specifically through Israel. But he also makes a specific promise to Simeon. And Simeon is so excited to see God do what God does in keeping his promise that he eagerly waits for it. There are three parts that you need to recognize in his waiting for God to fulfill his promise. First, he knew God's promise. He knew God's promise. He understood what God was saying to him. He listened to the word of God. Simeon would have spent time studying the scriptures to understand God's promise in relation to the consolation of Israel. How do I know that he studied the scriptures more than just hearing it like others might have? Well, for one thing, his description here of this salvation includes the Gentiles. 
And it goes on farther. Later on he says to Mary, a sword will pierce your own soul too. And he speaks of the rising and falling of many and the fact that it will be a sign that will be opposed, spoken against. He gets both the idea of Isaiah 9 and the idea of Isaiah 53. He overlays them and sees them. How does he do that? Because he knows the word of God. And he knows God's specific promise to him. Simeon knew God's promise. Second notice, he trusted God's promise. He trusted God's promise. There are so many things that that happen in life that can cause us to doubt. Say amen if you've had some doubts, right? Sometimes we we have this expectation God's going to do something, then God doesn't do it, and we're like, guess I can't trust God. What, what, What kind of hope can I have if I keep seeing Look, God's supposed to do this and God doesn't do it. Understand that my hope is only as good as the source of my hope. If I don't know the promise, then I can't trust the promise. But if I know the person making the promise, then the promise that I know can be worthy of trust or not. Because the word of a person is based on the character of that person. Right? There's a reason that nobody really expects most politicians to carry through on most of their campaign promises, right? You can smile. It's, you know, it's serious, but yeah, we can smile. Because that's what politicians do. They make a bunch of promises, and we mostly know that a lot of the things they're promising aren't within their control anyway. So we listen, it gives us an idea of what they want to do, but it's not even intended to be of a view of their character. How sad for us as a people. We're at a place now where people even do that with wedding vows. How many of you know wedding vows are not enough to keep you married? <laughs> vows have to be spoken by someone who will keep those vows. The vow is only as good as the person swearing it. The promise of God rests on the eternal, unchanging character of God who cannot lie and does not change. Simeon trusted God's promise. If God said it, I'm going to lean into it. If God said, I cannot die until he has revealed the Messiah to me personally, then it doesn't matter what virus I get. I might get sick, but I ain't going home yet because God isn't done. God keeps his promises. He trusted God's promise. He knew God's promise. He trusted God's promise. Thirdly, he lived according to God's promise. He lived according to God's promise. We see that he is righteous and devout. He knows that God is trustworthy. He knows that God is faithful. So he lives his life in light of that. The picture we see of Anna is a a parallel to Simeon. And both of them are living in this eager anticipation of what God is going to do in fulfilling His promise. It shapes them. It carries them through the dark times. It carries them through the temptation. Do they stumble? Of course they do. They're sinners like everybody else. But whatever happens, they cling to the promise. Man, today's rough, but God is good. Today I blew it, but God is faithful. I don't know how God can possibly bring this about. 
I just know that he will because I trust his character. He lived according to God's promise. The real hope of Christmas is the promise of God. So what does this say for us? What about our hope? Some of you are old enough to remember the Sears wish book. Anybody? How many of you were like me when you were a kid and the Sears wish book comes out in you know, August, September? It gives a lot of lead time, right? Started, they started publishing this in 1934. <laughs> and their, their theme was that people all around the country could wear city clothes. <laughs> but, but anyway, they, they published this. They stopped publishing it somewhere around 93, I think. This Sears wish book, big old thick, bigger than my Bible here, <laughs> which ought to tell us something. Uh, of all of these gifts and clothes and toys, it was a veritable smorgasbord to be able to see this. And we'd go through, and we'd, anybody else circle the pictures? Here's, here's my wish list. I'm just going to circle the pictures. Here's mom and dad, check it out. And we have this hope that we're going to get these things. Now, probably we know we're not getting all these things, but we're hoping we're going to get something. So we keep circling, right? There's a wishful thinking aspect to this. Man, I, I really hope this comes about. That's not biblical hope. That's a different kind of hope. Notice this. Hope is not wishful thinking. Hope is not wishful thinking. Hope is bigger. When we see Simeon and Anna, they are eagerly waiting on something. God has said something. They are trusting it. It's not a, well, man, I really hope God can come through on this one. I circled it in the book. I hope it comes true. It is an absolute certainty of something that has not yet happened. Faith and hope are tied together inextricably. I'm looking forward to something that is as certain as if it had already happened. That's biblical hope. It's not wishful thinking. Hope is not a positive outlook. It's not, let's be optimists, and the glass is, is you know, half uh, full rather than half empty. And if I think positive thoughts, this was a big thing in, in uh, Christian circles, if you will, during the 20th century and long before that and even now. If I just think positive thoughts, and it takes lots of different, uh, different forms. If I, if I name it and claim it, if I, if I just don't speak that terrible thing into existence and only say positive words and my, my, my self-talk is positive, that's, that's a strong thing. Now, there's some value in how I speak to myself as far as how I think. But I'm not creating realities with my positive outlook. Dump that garbage. That's, that, that's the kind of thing we got to kill. That needs to be in the trash. Biblical hope is not a positive outlook. Here's what it is. When we're talking about biblical hope, hope is the eager anticipation of a sure and certain future according to the promise of God. It's an eager anticipation of a sure and certain future according to the promise of God. Have you ever heard that the future is uncertain? Have you experienced that? Well, of course it is. I don't know what tomorrow brings. It's uncertain from my human perspective. But it is absolutely certain according to God's promise. God's promise never fails. 
what he promised to do in Isaiah 9. He gave us a deposit, if you will, by sending his son to do the work of getting sin right. When we see Isaiah 53 carried out in the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus, it reminds us that God who kept his promise in Isaiah 53 will also later keep his promise in Isaiah 9. Because Jesus will return and set all things right. When we look at the idea of heaven and all the miracles of the Bible, it's easy for us in our deistic mentality to say, well, come on, you can't, you can't really take that seriously. That's, those are just moral examples that you know, you're not really supposed to take them literally. How could God possibly do those things? Can you really believe that the earth is going to end the way Revelation says it's going to end, and the book of Daniel says it's going to end? Can you really believe that God's going to establish a new created order with different physical realities, and, and, and Jesus is going to ascend up into heaven in the book of Acts and descend and visibly come with trumpets? Do you really believe that kind of stuff? Absolutely. Why? Because we serve a God who has done such things. A God who has spoken the worlds into existence from nothing. A God who has ordered things and left traces of himself as clues to follow throughout the creative order. A God who manifests himself in the beauty and magnificence of nature and science. God gives us science to reveal himself. But more than that, he has spoken to us through his prophets. And he has given to us in these latter days his written word so that we can know not only his nature and his creative power, but his character, his promise-keeping character. We can know the way to find life when death is our default destiny. This is the God that we serve. This is what it means to have eager anticipation of a sure and certain future. I don't know what tomorrow brings, but I know what eternity brings. I don't know how you're going to get your bills paid, but I know that your sin debt has paid if you will receive the gift. I know for a fact that justice will ultimately be done, no matter what injustice we might see tomorrow. We trust in the Word of God, rooted in the character of God, to bring encouragement to us as the people of God. That's the hope that we celebrate. The real hope of Christmas is the promise of God. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, you alone are worthy of all our praise. You alone are a solid foundation for our hope. Father, teach us to understand your promises, to study your word diligently so that we know your promise. Help us, Father, to embrace 
the reality of your word, not just what we sense in our own understandings. Teach us to trust in you with all our heart. Not in any way to lean on our own understanding at the expense of that trust. Knowing that when we do, that when we surrender to you all of our ways, when we acknowledge and submit to you in all things, that you will straighten our path and lead us to the sure and certain future that is available by trusting Christ. Lord, as we celebrate this season, I pray that you would kill the false Christmas in us, that you would kill the false Christmas hope that we've held on to, and that you would lift up in us your truth Lord, remind us that our hope is not in Christmas, but in Christ. That He alone is our hope in life and in death. That our sins separate us from You and keep us from fulfilling the purpose for which You created us. Lead us into an eternal judgment. But Father, You have given us a way and that while we were yet sinners, you sent your Son to die for us, to take our place, to pay our debt. Father, we rest in the sure and certain hope and the promise of life that you offer us in Christ. Be glorified now, Lord. We pray this in his name. Amen. Let's stand, please.